Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Tom. Can you hear me okay? Yep, surely good. Who's had a nice weekend? Good. That's quite promising. Who's been on holiday? Who's come just come back from holiday? Yeah, a few. Because I've noticed this is this is a real September holiday church, isn't it? Obviously, a lot of empty nesters taking advantage of the the cheaper prices. And um, if you've been away, I hope you had a great time. And um, it feels to me like this is a, a bit of a milestone sermon. It's the beginning of our new sermon series, as you know. And I don't know what you think, but I think Daniel's done a fantastic job with these banners. And uh, that's going to enable us to track where we're heading right through the next two months or so. But I want to think back a little bit further before I begin, just to the beginning of the year and 2017 as a whole. And to the question that I think we've asked at several points through this year, what are we called to? What are we called to? My opening sermon of 2017 was entitled Following the Call of Jesus. And through the rest of that series from Mark into the three-week course Finding Your Place that we did in May, into the call to live distinctively, which we thought about in the summer, and then into the first two sermons of this month when Claire and then I preached again on the need to be called. It's something we thought about time and time again. And there was a distinction that's come out, uh, which uh, Claire reinforced and which the Finding Your Place course established, which is that we have two callings as Christians and as churches. The first is our primary calling, the general calling, if you like, the calling that all Christians share. And the second is that which is specific to us. And what's clear, as we've looked at this issue of calling, is that both matter. We need to pursue them both together. And that's not just true for us individually, but also for us as a church. And so actually, that's the link between our preaching journey through the year and our vision process through this year as well. Our sermon series have primarily covered our primary call, helping us understand what does the Bible tell us about being followers, not fans of Jesus, about living distinctively in making a difference in this world. Well, our vision process has focused on discerning our secondary call, first for us as individuals within finding your place, but then very much now as a church. What are the unique opportunities and challenges that we face here? And what specifically is God calling us here to at St Paul's? And that continues again this term. Our sermon series once more explores our primary calling, this time through the example of the early church. It's, if you like, the model New Testament community. What can we learn from it? That's what we're thinking about today and for the rest of this term. But alongside that, the vision process will conclude that discernment of our secondary calling. What specific things, particular to St Paul's, is God calling us to? So I want to briefly update you on that now. Uh, We're going to have a slide on the screen. Uh, This is where we've got to in the vision process and then We'll move on to the sermon itself. So we started back in June, sorry, back in January, February, March, thinking about where are we now? Where are we now at St. Paul's? We used the congregational survey to help us to do that, as well as a few other uh, forms of feedback as well. Then we focused on what is our mission, very much drawing on the Great Commission of Jesus there in Matthew 28, realizing that it's our job to make disciples of all nations 
and to teach them to obey Jesus. We've paraphrased that within our vision process as this, to become a missional community. Then we thought about where are we heading? What's our vision for the end of 2020? Thinking first about our vision overall, that was what we shared with you in June. Since then, we've been thinking about our vision for each ministry area. And then finally, what we're working on now is how do we get there? We know what God's calling us to be at the end of 2020. So what are the steps we need to take to get there? And we've already identified first initiatives for every ministry area. If you're interested in those, they're actually on uh, these sheets of paper here. You can take one as you leave. They're the things that we're going to get on with straight away. And then a little bit later in the term, at the end of November, we're going to share the journey beyond. How do we go the whole of the rest of the way to fulfill God's vision for us here at St. Paul's? And what part can we all play in making that happen? So that's where we're heading. This is a bit of information about where we're up to so far. The last two Sundays in November, we're finally going to launch the vision. Uh, we'll, We'll give you a lot more information and we'll pray for it too and look forward to how we can take it on in the new year. So that's enough about vision. We're going to move on to our sermon now. And just to set a little bit of context first uh, before we do. It's about this passage in Acts 2. It follows the day of Pentecost. You know about that story as the Holy Spirit came. Then Peter got up and preached an incredibly anointed sermon... It tells us in Acts 2 that 3,000 people responded that day. And then this little passage that we're going to hear read now, followed by a related passage in Romans, uh, tells us how that first community of 3,000 plus whoever were already the disciples and hangers-on, how that 3,100 people, whoever it was, actually lived. How they took this mission forward. What were their values What did they prioritise? And what, therefore, can we learn about our calling and our community today? And that's the way that we've chose to represent it. It's uh, looking like a a good classical uh, Roman uh, building there. Each of the pillars is one of those aspects of how that first Christian community lived. And the one in the middle, the one at the top, is the one we're going to focus on today. So, Anne, why don't you come and bring us our readings and then we'll unpack what it means for us. So as Tom said, we're sort of reading from Acts chapter 2, which can be found on page 1094 and is up on the screens, I hope, Um, and then on page 1139 when we go into Romans chapter 12. The Fellowship of the Believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily 
those who are being saved. Living Sacrifices Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, and thank you very much. So, I've got three main points that I want to cover this morning. You can see them on the screen there. Being devoted is demanding. Being devoted is about learning and changing. And being devoted is about love. But first, let's pray. Father, thank you that you are devoted to us. Thank you that you were so devoted that you sent Jesus to die for us. You, by your Spirit, have searched for us and called us home. You've called us by name. You love us and you care for us. You comfort us and you protect us. And Lord, we thank you that we can know you, that you have called us friends, children. And so, Father, as we think about devotion, we pray that you would help us to understand what that means, how we can get back to that place, and how we can have the impact for your kingdom as individuals and as a church that you long for us to have. So come, Lord Jesus, speak to us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so on with the sermon and my first point, that devotion is demanding. For I don't want us to miss the fact that this is a very strong word. Devotion. It's not half-hearted. It's not sporadic. It's not subordinate to anything else. But the latter can actually be a little lost in some of our common usage today, in the way that we use that word devotion in the 21st century in the UK. We might use it about our passions, our pastimes, our hobbies, our pets. I see it in eulogies quite frequently today, you know, where, uh, where I discover that someone can be devoted to chocolate or to table tennis or to their hamster or to family members that you hardly ever see, certainly to their football team, which doesn't do me a lot of good, I can tell you. 
They also feel a need that they must sometimes present the deceased as devoted to something at any cost. Yes, commitment is implied by using that word that way. Consistency is implied. But I looked at some older versions of the dictionary as well. The, uh, the old one I've got that's about 30 or 40 years old on my bookshelf. Another one that's been handed down to me uh, by my parents. And I looked at what they had to say about being devoted, about devotion. And what's interesting is they gave an additional, what you might call a specifically religious meaning. The idea of being consecrated, just as a monarch would be, or a member of a monastic community, it carries a much stronger sense, doesn't it, of being exclusively dedicated. And it's a loyalty that clearly trumps all others. It's total commitment. It's giving out all. And crucially, it's not just devotion to something. It's devotion to God. Which is why, although the Acts passage describes the believers as devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, they are really just aspects of the same underlying devotion to their heavenly Father and to their Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So devotion is not coming to church because we like the social life. It's not coming to church because we want to see our friends or make some. It's not coming to church because we like the music or the preaching, or the tradition, or the lack of tradition, or communion, or the children's work, or the youth work, or the building, or the coffee, or even the vicar, or because it makes us feel good, or virtuous, or gives us peace, or because we're on a rotor, or because it's just nearby and it's something to do. Not that any of those things are bad things in themselves, but none of them are really very important. They're just the trappings of religion, real devotion, is devotion to God and recognising that because God is God, the only appropriate response is to worship him, to bow down to him, to revere him, and in the the positive biblical sense, to fear him, which means something quite different to what fear means in common parlance today. What's it all about? It's about recognising that he is God and we are not That's why any biblical encounter with our Heavenly Father betrays exactly this reaction, fear and trembling. But in the New Testament, that's mixed with an extraordinarily strong sense of forgiveness and intimacy and love. And if we're not responding in these ways with reverence, with godly fear, well then we've lost sight of who God really is. It's not God we're really responding to. It's a human construct. It's God in our image. Not the all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty, holy God of the Bible. God as he was revealed himself to be. It's the God our culture wants to believe in. A God who demands nothing. A God with no teeth, with no challenge. Whom we can safely ignore. An irrelevant God. A soft, cuddly God, just for those who are into that sort of thing. Whereas the real God is the God Isaiah saw and proclaimed, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Yet foreshadowing the forgiveness that would later be 
earned by Jesus, that same God who he trembled at, said this, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And it's this tension that we too should hold together. For real devotion comes from understanding both the holiness of God and the mercy of God. His justice and his grace. And that though we should be banished from his presence, he lovingly beckons us in. It's amazing. It's astonishing. It's incredible. That's what's so amazing about grace, as that well-known book of uh, 20 years ago or so says. So in this context, the words we heard in Romans 12, verse 1, make so much more sense. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This, and no less than this, is your true and proper worship. For what else would do? Jesus gave his life for us when he died for us on the cross. So the only appropriate response is to offer him our lives as a living sacrifice in return. As Paul would put it elsewhere, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Or as the famous hymn writer Isaac Watts put it, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So that's my first point this morning. Devotion is demanding. My second is this. Devotion is about learning and changing. For what did our passage from Romans go on to say? It said this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. The implication, of course, being that we don't just need to test and approve God's will to find out what it is but we need to obey it and in such a way change and grow so that what God calls us to in his word becomes the way we live. But what I want to particularly highlight and unpack right now is how this actually happens. Because yes, there is a sense in which in that verse, the renewing of our mind happens to us. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. But there's also a strong sense that it's very much our work too. Through the discipline of fellowship, of Bible study and of prayer. It's why the Acts passage describes their devotion in relation to all three. Because without them, that transformation will fall short. God doesn't just hypnotise us and magically we transform. It's through us doing the hard work of praying, digging into his word, of sharing that with other people and being encouraged by them, and then him by his spirit taking that word and sowing it into our hearts and minds and into our lives. That's what it's all about. 
That's why the Acts passage mentions all of them and it's why we're in danger if we don't allow all of those things to happen and we don't commit to them. That we'll be like the writer, the church, the writer to the Hebrews spoke to when he said, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Brothers and sisters, we don't want that to be true of us. We need to keep growing. We need to keep hungering. We need to keep stretching for more and more of God, to know his word, to know it in its totality, to understand it, to live by it, to love it, and to share it. And yet the problem for us today in the West, compared at least to recently past generations, is there have never been more distractions, and especially from regular deep Bible study. And in the same ways, there have been more distractions, there are more distractions from regular church attendance than there have been for decades. So many other alternative ways to spend our Sundays, and there's never been less scripture passing through our culture or through our schools. Biblical literacy rates have never been lower. Church attendance has never been lower. The consequence is that when people become Christians today, they're pretty well starting from scratch. So the only remedy then, the only remedy, and we're certainly not meant to give up and say it's too difficult, but the only remedy is intentionality. Recognising that we need to learn from and be supported by each other weekly, if not more often, and it certainly was more than weekly for that early church. Why? Because they were hiding from the rest of the world? No, because they knew that only if they were growing fast, holding fast to the teaching of the apostles, only if they were praying for each other, strengthening each other, encouraging each other, would they be different and changed and radiant. And only then, when they spent the rest of their lives working and and, uh, living and mixing among the rest of their society, only then would those people notice there was something different about them and say, I want what you've got. This is the balance we're looking for. We spend enough time in God's word and with other believers, praying, sharing, encouraging, so that we are being changed. And then we spend as much time outside the church, mixing among those on our front line, as we'll be thinking about in our life groups this term, making sure that light, which is radiant in us, is visible to everyone else. That's the balance. Are you growing and are you glowing? And can everyone else see it? If you've got that right, then we're doing what the early church did. So intentionality, that's what we need. There's no substitute for it. And there were no real shortcuts either. Yes, courses like Alpha and Christianity explored are great at the beginning of the Christian journey, where all the elements of the good news of the gospel is really helpfully distilled, presented, applied, and we're given nice food as well. Who's not going to like that? But the challenge is what comes next. And in my faith, I have to say that it was built on really uh, regular and fruitful quiet times, in which I started to really love the Bible as a totality. And with the New Testament and the Psalms particularly, to really get to grips with it. As I started to lead home groups and then to preach, I became increasingly aware of the power of the word 
and the Spirit at work as I did this. That God was giving particular preaching points or teaching points for me to pass on and giving me words to express those things that I knew were coming from his Spirit and not from me. Now, we're all shaped differently. Some of us are wordy people. Some of us are visual people. Some of us are activists. We need to be getting out there doing things. Some of us are musical worship people. Some of us just want to be out in creation, allowing that to speak to us. I want to affirm you in however you're wired and in however God grows you. But I also want to say, though we may not all be preachers, we may not all be natural students of historical texts, Reading the Bible is not like studying Shakespeare. It's not like studying ancient Greece. Because it's alive. It contains everything to make us wise for salvation and to have the impact on our society that God calls us to. Listen to it if that's easier for you, like Kate does each day. She listens to the Bible being read. Read commentaries if that helps you. Buy discussion guides like Life Builder guides and ask yourself questions if that helps you. Make sure you study the Bible in small groups if that helps you. And we've got so many great groups here that you can do that with. Why not read one-to-one with another person, a prayer partner? Why not read different translations of the Bible? Why not read Christian books that help make sense of the Bible and apply it into our lives? Whatever works for you, go for it. But you need the word dwelling in you richly. It's so important. It may be slightly unfashionable, but it's absolutely necessary. I encourage every one of you to start reading it, start meditating on it, start studying it, and start sharing its encouragements, its truths, the perspective that it gives with everyone that you get a chance to talk to. Because these are the words that give life. These are the words that give peace. And these are the words that will never, ever disappear. It's our heritage. It's God's gift to humankind. He sent Jesus to live for us and to die for us. And he gave us the Bible so that we would know him. And he sent us his spirit so that we could talk to him. And he sent us his spirit so that we could do greater things even than those that he did. What a challenge. What a privilege. What an honor. What a calling. What a mission. And it's for us. So I don't just want to give you fish. I don't want to just pick out things from the Bible and say, off you go, run with this. Do run with it. But I also want you to fish for yourselves. I want you to look for those gems that God has for you on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday. Set aside the time. Look for it. Believe that God will meet with you. And when you do have the opportunity to set a bigger period of time aside, I used to very much operate on the basis of Maybe once or twice a week, I could block out, say, 45 minutes where I'd really get into a passage and I would really pray into whatever was on my mind and whatever God was prompting me to pray for so that by the end of that time, I knew I'd done serious business with God. I didn't manage to do it every day. It was a once a week or twice a week thing. But I just want to suggest, could you do that this week? Could you this week 
touch base with God, briefly read a a few verses of scripture just to give a bit of perspective on your day. But once or twice this week, set aside a longer period, maybe half an hour if you're not used to it, 45 minutes if you are. I'm going to email you on Friday and remind you. And then next Sunday, what I'm looking forward to is you coming back and when we have our celebration time, I'd love to hear a few people celebrating how God spoke to them that week. Does that sound like a challenge? Does that sound like a a deal? Okay, you do it, I'll do it, and we'll see what happens. And here's the thing. We can actually measure whether we're actually growing and whether we are actually meditating in the way that the Bible calls us to. One of my other favourite passages is Psalm 1. And these words here, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. And that psalm has become for me like a spiritual thermometer, meditating day and night. It's not literal, I think, in every waking hour, but it is in terms of frequency for a daily dependence on the scriptures to shape us, to encourage us, to focus us, and to feed us is certainly possible in today's age, as is a daily, nightly offering of the events of the day back to him, to hand over to his control and to seek his peace. And we can measure whether we're doing that, whether we're really delighting in God's word, And we can measure fruitfulness to a significant degree too. We can say and ask ourselves, are we actually growing in our faith, consciously learning new things, new lessons, seeing our character change this week, this month, this year? And if you're not sure if you are, why don't you ask your partner or a close friend? What have they noticed? What growth have they seen? And let's be honest, we know what sort of impact we're having on others as well. We know whether we've been sharing wisdom, giving encouragement, providing support, sharing burdens. We know what conversations we're having, and we generally know whether there's a positive outcome to them too. We can often see it in people's gratitude, in their response to us, in the peace that it's given them. And when the Spirit prompts it and confirms it, it's so encouraging, it's so exciting, it's so joy-giving to feed on God's Word and to share God's word, to receive that encouragement and that life, and to share that encouragement and that life. That's what we're here for, to breathe in and to breathe out. For God's word will not return to him empty. Freely we've been given, so freely we must give. And there really is a freedom about all of this. I don't want to be legalistic about it, but I don't want to be dishonest about it either. I don't read the Bible every day, not in the sense of really absorbing it, chewing it over, letting it finish its work. I should, but I don't always. My work distracts me from doing it, strange though that might seem. It's the tyranny of the urgent, from which pastors are certainly not immune. And I too have lazy days, moody days, unfocused days, joyless days. But what I do know is that when I put in the effort to properly study God's word. It works more often than not. My motivation levels to serve God go up 
and my anxiety levels and my negativity levels go down. So let me ask you now, as I ask myself, are you devoted to the apostles' teaching through devotion to God's word? And if the answer is no, as it will be for many of us, well, can I set you that challenge that I, I shared a little bit earlier? Set aside that time. Do it. Believe God will speak to you through it. And next week we'll celebrate the difference that it made. So, I've got one final, very brief point to make now. And it's this, that devotion ultimately is about love. It's about loving God enough to make an effort. And about loving what he loves and hating what he hates. Which sounds wrong, doesn't it? We assume that that we shouldn't be hating anything. But actually, we only assume that when we forget the words of that passage from Romans. When we forget that it's what God loves and what God hates that we need to love and hate. So what does God love? He loves us. And he loves every man, woman and child he has made. He loves us all more than we can possibly comprehend. And yet what he hates is not the sinner but the sin. And he calls us to do likewise. Romans 12 verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. So how do we grow in love, in fervour for God? By reminding ourselves of its incredible love for us. Shown throughout human history through the wonder of creation and his gracious provision for us. But never more compellingly than in the wonder of the cross. And how do we hate what God hates? We engage in the spiritual battle. We seek to make sure that Satan has no hand on us, that he's not influencing us. We seek to oppose him wherever we see him at work. We seek to to rescue people from being under his control. And we, we stay evil for what it is. We're in a spiritual battle. Remember whose side you're on. And remember that ultimately the war has been won. Because on the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and principalities. He made a spectacle of them. And so we too are stronger than he, than the evil one. Cling to what is good. Cling to God. And you can be someone who pushes back the frontiers of the kingdom and sees many come to faith through you, through each of us working together, sharing the gospel, showing God's love and trusting in the Spirit to lead us to where the harvest is. He knows who's open. He knows who's hungry. He knows who's broken. He knows who desperately are actually seeking purpose in their life. Desperately seeking the peace that only God can bring. Desperately seeking someone who will love them so that they can love themselves. That is what we're called to. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus was asked. To which he replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. But here's the thing, love is primarily not a feeling, but an action. The action comes first, the feelings may follow. It's the love of a deep and long-lasting marriage, not a whirlwind romance, where devotion is about discipline, but not duty. It's about being a cheerful giver and a loyal, faithful servant, knowing that if we in the long term put the effort in and keep listening and praying, studying and speaking, choosing to love God, we will reap the rewards. For love grows, love deepens, love satisfies, love endures. So I want to finish today with a challenge. How is your love life this morning? Not a question I've asked any of my friends for quite a while, about 10 years ago, I think. But it's a good question, particularly if we apply it to our love for God. Could you honestly describe yourself as devoted to Jesus right now? Well, here's the good news. If, as I suspect, many of us would say, well, no, or not really, or not quite. Well, here's the great news. We can always come back anytime, any place. And I want to give us that opportunity now. So, I'd like to invite the band to come to the front. I invite us all to stand.